Good morning, friends. Thank you again for joining us online. We are now in week 10 of the series that we have titled Hope Springs, Real Hope for the Real World. And for the past 10 weeks, we have talked about how to cultivate hope, how to nourish and ground our hope, how to grow hope, uh, being aware of the things that sap us of our hope, how to live as hope spreaders in the world. But this morning, I'm excited about this opportunity to speak specifically about how it is that we can communicate and pass on hope to the next generation. You know, one of my favorite quotes about next-gen ministry uh, is from a pastoral colleague. This is what he said. He said, God irrationally loves young people so much that he mass produces them. Every time a new life comes into the world, it's as if God is saying, there's hope for us, and there's hope for our world, and there is hope for our future. Well, you know, while God may mass produce many young people, my wife and I, we produced just three. So here's a picture of our family. In the center there, that's my wife, Karina. She is a social worker on an oncology hematology unit. She's amazing. She's just amazing. Uh, there on one side is our little guy. That's our little boy, Joshua. And, and I tell you this, this picture is almost a year and a half old now. So he's my height. He's just two weeks shy of being 16 years old. And uh, well, he's our baby. Uh, on the other side is uh, is our oldest. That's Rachel. She she works in the COVID vaccination clinic at Oakville Trafalgar Memorial Hospital. And uh, boy, we're pretty proud of her. And then there on uh, the flanking side is Nicole. Nicole is uh, studying to be a French immersion teacher at U of T. So all of you educators out there who are exhausted in the midst of this pandemic, help is on the way. <laughs> but it'll just be a few years. For all of us, particularly for those who are watching, and maybe you have an infant at home or a toddler, or there's a child that you've been homeschooling during lockdown, maybe it's a roommate or a family member, but we've gone through this quarantine season and there's something that is just exhausting about the whole endeavor. And so if that's you, let me just invite you to go ahead and put your best hashtag right in the chat section. And we can commiserate with each other about the experience of going through this lockdown and what it's been like dealing with kids and family when we're all shut in together behind closed doors. As you're doing that, and as you're surveying the results of it, and hopefully there's a little bit of laughter, let me just say that these kind of expressions of, uh, of just sincere but humorous emotion, these little hashtag rants, if you'd like, uh, they're completely understandable. But from time to time, they have a way of getting out of control. Uh, let me give you an example. Most of you at some point have probably been on the receiving end of one of those emails that has a way of circulating the globe that talks about just how lazy and coddled this generation of young people are. They don't know how good they've got it. Life was so harder for my generation. There, there are dozens and dozens of examples of these, and, and I've saved most of them. But here's one. This is a quote from the email. A youngster asked his grandfather, he says, Grandpa, how is it that people lived before with no technology, no airplanes, 
No internet, no computers, no dramas, no TVs, no air cons, no cars, no mobile phones. And granddad replied, just like your generation lived today, with no prayer, no compassion, no honor, no respect, no character, no shame, no modesty. He went on to say, we, the people born between 1945 and 1989, we are the blessed ones. Our lives are living proof. And here's what he said. While playing and riding bicycles, we never wore helmets. I'm not sure that's a good thing, but he went on to say, after school, we played until dusk. We never watched TV. Yeah, but we're making up for it now. We played with real friends, not internet friends. Because internet friends aren't real. Hmm. Nothing happened to our feet despite roaming around barefoot. Our parents weren't rich. They gave love, not worldly materials. We never had cell phones, DVDs, PlayStation, Xbox, personal computers, internet, chat. But we had real friends, whatever those are. Relatives lived close by, so family time was enjoyed. We may have been in black and white photos, but you can find colorful memories in those photos. We are unique because we are the last generation who listened to their parents and also the first who have had to listen to their children. Not sure about either one of those things. but We are a limited edition. Learn from us and treasure us. And we do. I mean, really, we do. That's the end of the email, but we do treasure you. And let me just say, there is just, there is so much to be admired about every generation. And there are probably things that we need to be careful and even critical about in each generation. But to dismiss a whole generation saying, this is what we believe about you. You have no honor, no compassion, no respect, no shame, no commitment to prayer. Instead, Look at us, the greatest generation. Look at us with our skyrocketing divorce rates, our plunging church attendance, our excessive materialism, our fading generosity. Look at us. Learn from us. And that can't be what we want to communicate to the next generation. Be careful when those emails make their rounds. What we say when we pass them on unedited. This morning, we're going to link our conversation about hope, about hope in the future. We're going to link it to the next generation. And if there were a way of boiling down everything that that I might want to say about what North American youth are expressing If I could boil it down to one phrase, just based on on conversation after conversation, listening to my own kids and, and reading studies, that one phrase would be, why don't you have a place for me? Why is there no space for me? Why aren't the questions we're asking, the issues we're wrestling with, the causes we're passionate about, Why does it feel like they're not being taken seriously? Why is it that the old, old story isn't connecting with my life? You know, it's interesting because we believe that the church 
really is the most hope-giving community that ever existed in the world. We have this hope, uh, the beautiful expression from last week's message. And didn't Rochelle, as a, as a spokesperson for that generation, didn't she do a fantastic job? But we have this sense that, that hope is the anchor for our soul, firm and secure. We know that hope for us has a name. The name is Jesus, and we believe that, and we build our lives on that. And if that's true... If this really is the most hope-filled, hope-giving organization in the whole world, then we ought to see students flocking to the church. They ought to be just pushing over us to get into the church. We should be bending over backwards to see them involved and alive in the church because we have this hope that is firm and secure, and it's an anchor for our souls. We should say that whatever else... We are willing to give up. We will not give, on this, give up on this, and we will do whatever it takes so that students can experience that hope with us. Because if we're being honest, looking out at this generation, we need to admit that they're not experiencing it. They're not flocking to churches. And I'm using the word church intentionally through this message because allegiance to the church and allegiance to Jesus are two very different things. And for young people with a high level of distrust of most authorities, including the church as an organizational authority, it's a lot harder to bring to them hope through the church than it is hope in Jesus. But let's stay with the language of church because we know and we can test and study this that that they're not flocking to the church. In fact, they're running away from it. They're running in the opposite direction. Research study says that 25% of all our high school seniors have never attended a church in any capacity for any reason, not even once. There's another study that came out of the Fuller Youth Institute that says that of all the students who grew up in the life of the church, who graduate from youth group and youth ministries and go to college or university, 50%, fully one half of them, will walk away from their faith within the first three years. And then, get this, this is the one that really tugs at me. The study called The Great Opportunity. It takes this data and it extends it out through the year 2015, 2050, 2050. And it says, if trends stay the same, if nothing changes, 35 million young people will walk away from their faith over the next 30 years. It's one million young people every year, year after year after year. They're not flocking to the church. They're flocking away from it. Now, some of you may be trying to do the math, and you realize that that those are wider statistics than, than Canada can accommodate. In fact, many of those are U.S. statistics, and often, and especially in the past year, we pride ourselves on, on the fact that, well, we have good relationships with our neighbor to the south. We are not the same as our neighbor to the south. But the bad news for us in this case is that the story for Canada and Canada's young people is actually worse. In Quebec, you have the least reached, the least faith-conscious and faith-populated area in the entire northern hemisphere. In Canada, things are even more dire. Now, here's what all of this does to me. 
And here's what I hope it does to you, because I know you have young people in your life that you love. I know you have young people in your home that you love. There's young people that you've raised that you love. I know that some of you are watching, you are young people. And I hope we're going to present your case well today. Really, you should be the one standing here. And I hope you get that opportunity. But I know that if nothing else, you were all young people. We were all young people at one time. And it breaks my heart, and it should break your heart, and I know it does, to hear the stories again and again of young people who just feel like there is no place for them. It breaks our hearts to hear that they're walking away from faith because we have this hope, this hope that we feel like is the secure bedrock for our lives. And we have a generation that en masse are crying out for hope. And somehow the two that should be connected are not connecting. And the reason this should really matter to us is because whenever, whenever there is a group of people crying out in distress... It gets God's attention. We see this throughout Scripture, from the beginning of the Old Testament right through the New. But the one place that you see it, maybe most profoundly and most repeatedly, is in the book of Exodus. We're going to spend a little bit of time in the book of Exodus this morning. Uh, Exodus is the story of God's people, the Israelites. And here's a bit of the background. God's people were slaves, They were in bondage. And get this, this is ironic. The reason that they were in slavery, they were living in Egypt, is because they were so successful in mass-producing young people. Their numbers surged to such an extent that they became a threat to Egypt. And Egypt's way of managing the threat is they became increasingly nervous about the swelling population within their borders was to impose slavery on the whole nation. So you have Israel, God's people, a nation teeming with young people, trapped in the bitter bondage of slavery. So what did they do? Well, have a look at me at at the book of Exodus in chapter 2 and verse 23. This is what we see them doing. The people of Israel groaned. They groaned because of their slavery and they cried out for help. That makes sense, doesn't it? When people are in slavery, when people are oppressed, when people are on the outside looking in, they cry out. They cry out. They they groan and they rage. And we see that with the Israelites. We see that in our country still today. Whenever there's a group of people isolated, oppressed, oppressed, and crying out for relief, what is it that God does? Well, here's what God does. Read on with, with me. This is Exodus 2, verse 24. So their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning. God heard the cry of his people. God heard the cry of the oppressed. And not only did God hear, God acted. And here's what he did. He finds a man named Moses, and he says to Moses, this is Exodus 3 in verse 7. He says, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt. I've heard their cry. I mean, at this point, God is just kind of giving Moses a sit rep. Here's the situation, Moses. And Moses is probably thinking, yeah, God, I know, I know, I I know all about it. I'm one of them now, right? 
But God, you've got this. Your people are in distress, and we know you're going to do something. You're God, after all. We know you're going to make an impact, and you can step into the situation. Little did he know what was coming next. God says this to Moses. He says, come. This is verse 10 in chapter 3. He says, come, and I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. And Moses is like, no, 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 no. You are the one who is supposed to do something, God. You're the one who's supposed to intervene. I'm not part of the plan here. I can't do that. But God says, Moses, my Moses, my man, you are the plan. And I'm going to work through you. And I'm going to use you to rescue my people. Because this just seems to be the way that God likes to work. Whenever there's a group of people crying out, God hears it. and God has a way of raising up someone to answer the cry. Think about that in your own life for a minute. If you've been following God for any amount of time, Think back to a moment in your life when you know decisively that God showed up. Maybe it was a time that that God answered prayer, and, and you just knew that what happened was an answer to prayer. How did he do it? And I'll bet that one of the ways that he did it was through someone else's action. When people cry out, God hears it, and he raises up someone to answer the cry. So here's what I want you to know. Here's what I want you to hear today. There is a generation crying out, crying out for hope, even when they don't know it. And God is raising up people to answer. I want you to be particularly attuned to any feeling, any unsettled nudge or prompt in your life during the course of this message and be open to the possibility that God is going to use you, use you as part of the answer to their cries. There's a book called iGen, small i, capital G-E-N, kind of like the Apple nomenclature, iGen. And there's research in the book. This is, this is hard research, but I think you need to hear this. Cutting-edge research says suicide rates among young people are up. Major depressive episodes among young people are way up. Loneliness and isolation among young people are up. Mental health crises among young people are up. All of that is a way of saying that that they're crying for hope even when they don't know that they're doing it. This is a generation crying out. And we know that God hears the cry. And we know that in response... That God is nudging and prompting and calling out to churches all across Canada to step into the surf and to be involved in the mission of trying to bring something of, of real value and hope and significance into the lives of this generation. To be hope bringers. To be hope sloshers, if you want to use the word that we used a, a couple of weeks back. So here's what I want to tell you today. Specifically, if you're watching and if you're part of this MCBC community, 
Because I, I don't want this to be a browbeating message. In fact, just the opposite. I want to say I am so proud to be part of a church like Mississauga City Baptist that cares for and values and loves the next generation because I know that, that God is already doing that here in many ways. That I know that many of you have already stood up to answer the call to step into the life of this generation. I'm so thankful to be part of a church like that. Every week, all throughout this COVID pandemic, we've had loads of leaders and students meeting together to share life whether that's been informally in mentoring relationships and, and casual conversations and calls or, or in the steady progress of, of junior high and senior high youth ministry or our experiments with our online Children's Acorns program or our, our newly relaunched online Promised Land activities. But whatever it is, we have young people and we have older people and they're meeting together in the name of God and I think what they're really doing is bringing encouragement and hope to each other. And you know what? Uh, they were doing that before quarantine ever started. Now they're doing it on Zoom calls. But, but whatever the format, I am just so proud of you for doing that. Every weekend, when we meet at in-person services, we, we have young people serving on tech teams and greeting teams and, and worship teams. Because we know where we have young people and older people coming together to share life, hope is one of the things that surely emerges. Younger people and older people coming together, generations living life in synchronicity. Everyone gets just a little bit more hope, a little more blessing when that happens. And so, for MCBC in particular, I guess what I'm inviting us to, what I'm calling us to, is just a little bit more of that. Not, but be, not because we're doing a bad job, but because 35 million kids will walk away from their faith over the next 30 years if something doesn't change. And that breaks my heart. And I know it breaks yours. So what I'd like to do just for a few minutes is have a conversation about how it is that we can do it. And this is not meant to be a toolkit, meaning you flip open this part of the Swiss Army knife and you use that. These are meant to be principles. The thing with principles is is you can apply them widely across situations. If I give you a tool, sometimes the tool is only good for one job. I want to give you principles. And then I'm going to give you two very concrete opportunities to respond. But here's the principles when it comes to sharing hope with the next generation. You know, it's, it's impossible really to, to lay the blame neatly in any one place. When one generation fails to pass the baton well to the next, when hope doesn't get communicated? Did the first generation just fail to reach out? Did the second generation just harden their hearts and, and fail to take what was being offered to them? The, the answer is, is usually some combination of both and a whole bunch of things beyond. But here's the thing. 
Mistakes made by one generation are often magnified by the next. And we are now two, almost three generations into a series of bad habits in how we pass hope. And commitment is replaced by complacency, and then complacency is replaced by compromise. So let me draw your attention to a couple of really famous passages of Scripture that I think can be instructive here. They show us what needs to be done in order to pass on hope. The first is from the book of Deuteronomy. Again, this is all about the story of God's people, his children. These are the Exodus people that we just read about. Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 to 7. Many of you will know these words. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your strength. These commandments that I give you today are to be on your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them. Talk about them when you sit down at home and when you walk along the road and when you lie down and when you get up. From that passage, I I want to draw out for you three principles. Here's the first, and this is for the hope-passing generation, for, for the older generation. If you want to begin loving this generation of young people, start here. Make sure your own love for God is passionate, authentic, and sincere. Love God passionately. We love God wholeheartedly, having his commandments, which is to say his will, written on our hearts which means we're not hypocritical or inconsistent in our behavior. means that that God's word isn't kept mechanically or partially, but that we allow God to have an effect on all of us and all through us. Why is that important? Because, Because young people are particularly sensitive to hypocrisy, as well they should be. They're sensitive to inconsistency. That's probably the overwhelming reason why as a generation they have thrown out any sense of trust in institutions like marriage because they've just seen how it fails. In institutions like the church because they have watched it mired in scandal after scandal. Love God passionately. Make sure that it runs through and through. Because if you're going to love a young person with the love of God, And that love of God looks insincere. They're going to see not just you, but God is insincere. Here's the second. When it comes to communicating hope, do it practically. Impress truth practically. We're to apply the gospel practically, not just academically, not just abstractly. Deuteronomy 6 verse 7 is not talking about instituting regular family lectures. Look at all the references about when you're sitting down, when you're walking along the road, when you're lying down, when you're getting up. 
Make faith real in the routines of day-to-day life. Instruction in God's truth is not so much a series of lectures and classes. Rather, we are to impress hope and faith and truth by showing how these things relate to the everyday tasks of life. Really, this is just a call to be wise and thoughtful about how all the values and virtues of the gospel, how they influence our decisions and our priorities. So that's the second principle. Impress hope in ways that are practical. Here's the third one. When you're doing it, when you're giving testimony, do it personally. Let me have you glance down a little bit later in Deuteronomy 6 and and look at these verses in verses 20 through 25. Deuteronomy 6, 20 to 25. We are to link the substance of our faith to the experience of God's saving activity in our lives. We're to give personal testimony to how God has made a difference in us, how he's brought us from bondage to freedom. Listen to this story, verse 20. In the future... When your son asks you, what's the meaning of all this, all these stipulations and decrees and laws that the Lord our God has commanded? Tell him this. This is a personal story. We were once slaves. We were in bondage to Pharaoh in Egypt, but the Lord brought us out of all that with a mighty hand. And before our eyes, the Lord has sent signs and wonders. I think for the most time when we're when we're talking about faith, really what we're wanting to talk about is beliefs and behavior. And that's important. What is it we believe? How is it we behave? But have you ever noticed this? I find it in, in most of our small groups. I find it in my own life. We're reticent to talk about the experience of God in our own heart, in our own life. We have to be open here. We have to be vulnerable enough about our own struggles. We have to to be transparent about how repentance works in our lives, how we were broken, how we made a mess of it, how we did get trapped in sin, and how God led us out of that. And we have to be consistent in the behavior that follows So consistent in behavior, wise about reality, and warm and personal in the way we talk about our faith. Now, here's here's the caution. History and experience have shown us that those three things, those three principles, are very hard to carry out on a broad scale. There's no way to write them into a curriculum. They're not embedded in a church program. Most Christians rely on institutions and formal instruction to somehow pass on hope as if that spark was contained in a binder or a box. We assume that if we instruct children in correct doctrine, if we keep them sheltered from immoral behavior, if we involve them in religious activities, then hope will catch And we assume that if we do those things, really we've done all that we can.
Again, I'm reticent to speak for them, so let me just speak again what I've heard from them. Young people aren't just turned off by hypocrisy and bad examples, but I think they are also turned off by adults who are not savvy about life, about their lives, don't understand the world in which they live, which is why never dismiss internet friends as if they're not real friends. They, they are let down by people who are not savvy about their life and are not self-aware about the life of the older generation. They need people who are vulnerable and authentic and real. So again, building on the, on the good foundation of what's already in place here, let me just say that so many of you have already caught this, but I want to invite us to more. If you've ever wondered what you should do at the end of a sermon, well, this week I'm going to tell you. This week it's going to be crystal clear. Two things. Here's the first thing, and this is for everyone. If you're listening to this message today, this is for you. I want to invite all of us to join together and pray for our students over the next seven days. Don't pray for them generically. God, we just ask that you help all of our students. Pray for them specifically. There's an email address that's going to show up on your screen right now for our prayer line. I want you to send a quick message to that address. doesn't need to have anything in it except your name. And if you don't send your name, we've still got your respond email. And then over the next day or two, we're going to send you back the name of one of our students, probably just their first name and, and where they're at in life and schooling. And we're going to ask you to pray for them vigilantly, vigilantly over the next seven days. And then imagine, can you just imagine what God would do if 500 or 800 or 1,000 of us joined together over the next seven days to pray for all of the students in our ministry? What could God do with that? You think those prayers would make a difference in the lives of our students did you think them knowing that that large group of people are praying for them would make a difference? Of course it would. That name that you're given, that name is a student with a life, with struggles, with great potential, with a family situation, with, with positive and negative things going on, facing all the same struggles that you are in the midst of a COVID pandemic, without anywhere near the resources that you've had to get through it. Pray together and expect God to do something amazing. Now, the second thing I want to ask is for just some of you. For some of you, maybe you're feeling the call to do just a little bit more. And I want to give you some language around that. I want you to think of that as the call to be a mentor in the life of a student. To show up. Commit yourself to show up regularly in the lives of our students. Maybe you're realizing that you had somebody like that in your own life. 
And you can think back to those circumstances and you know that at that pivotal, pivotal stage in life where everything was hanging in the balance, there was that person there for you and it made all the difference. And now you're feeling, I could do that. I've got time. Or I don't have time, but I'll make time. I don't know everything, but It's not about knowing everything. This is about a deposit of faith that comes through authentic relationship. What would it look like? What would it mean in the middle of COVID for the life of our students to have adults showing up, saying we're here for you because we believe that you matter. In fact, you're top priority for us. If you're feeling God tugging at your heart for that, we have a link for you. And that's the link to the pastor of youth and student ministries here at the church. You see his name. And uh, again, if you just send a simple email with your name, we'll get back in touch with you and, and, talk, about, and talk about what that could look like. Just begin a conversation about how that relationship could change your life and the life of one of our students.